0: Section 27 of A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language Volume 1 This is a LibriVox recording, all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org A Compendious History of English Literature and of the English Language Volume 1 by George Lily Crake Chapter 4 Part 3 On the whole, then, we may say that substantially Turwitt's theory remains unshaken, and we shall in our extracts assume that the mode proposed by him of reading the verse of Chaucer and his contemporaries is the true one. The reader, to whom it may be new, will find, after a very little practice, that the ear soon gets accustomed to the peculiarities of pronunciation required, and the slight error of archaism which they impart rather adds to the effect of the poetry, so that we come to prefer the retention of these obsolete forms to any substitution, however delicately made, that would aim at modernizing it, or making it more intelligible. We shall not, however, in our transcripts attempt to indicate the pronunciation by any accentual or other marks, being of opinion with Turwit that a reader who cannot perform such operations for himself had better not trouble his head about the versification of chaucer the notion probably which most people have of chaucer to borrow a few sentences of what we have written elsewhere is merely that he was a remarkably good poet for his day but that both from his language having become obsolete and from the advancement which we have since made in poetical taste and skill he may now be considered as fairly dead and buried in a literary as well as in a literal sense this we suspect is the common belief even of educated persons and of scholars who have not actually made acquaintance with chaucer but know him only by name or by sight by that antique sounding disyllable that seems to belong to another nation and tongue as well as to another age and by that strange costume of diction grammar and spelling in which his thoughts are clothed fluttering about them as it appears to do like the rags upon a scarecrow now instead of this the poetry of chaucer is really in all essential respects about the greenest and freshest in our language we have some higher poetry than chaucer's poetry that has more of the character of a revelation or a voice from another world we have none in which there is either a more abounding or a more bounding spirit of life a truer or fuller natural inspiration he may be said to verify in another sense the remark of bacon that what we commonly call antiquity was really the youth of the world his poetry seems to breathe of a time when humanity was younger and more joyous-hearted than it now is undoubtedly he had an advantage as to this matter in having been the first great poet of his country occupying this position he stands in some degree between each of his successors and nature the sire of a nation's minstrelsy is of necessity though it may be unconsciously regarded by all who come after him as almost a portion of nature as one whose utterances are not so much the echo of hers as in very deed her own living voice carrying in them a spirit as original and divine as the music of her running brooks or of her breezes among the leaves and there is not wanting something of reason in this idolatry it is he alone who has conversed with nature directly and without an interpreter who has looked upon the glory of her countenance unveiled and received upon his heart the perfect image of what she is succeeding poets by reason of his intervention and that imitation of him into which in a greater or less degree they are of necessity drawn see her only as it were wrapped in hazy and metamorphosing adornments which human hands have woven for her and are prevented from perfectly discerning the outline and the movements of her form by that encumbering investiture they are the fallen race who have been banished from the immediate presence of the divinity and have been left only to conjecture from afar off the brightness of that majesty which sits thrown to them behind impenetrable clouds he is the first man who has seen god walking in the garden and communed with him face to face but chaucer is the homer of his country not only as having been the earliest of her poets deserving to be so called but also as being still one of her greatest the names of spencer of shakespeare and of milton are the only other names that can be placed on the same line with his his poetry exhibits in as remarkable a degree perhaps as any other in any language an intermixture and combination of what are usually deemed the most opposite excellences great poet as he is we might almost say of him that his genius has as much about it of the spirit of prose as of poetry and that if he had not sung so admirably as he has done of flowery meadows and summer skies and gorgeous ceremonials and high or tender passions and the other themes over which the imagination loves best to pour her vivifying light he would have won to himself the renown of a montaigne or a swift by the originality and penetrating sagacity of his observations on ordinary life his insight into motives and character the richness and peculiarity of his humour the sharp edge of his satire and the propriety flexibility and exquisite expressiveness of his refined yet natural diction even like the varied visible creation around us his poetry too has its earth its sea and its sky and all the sweet vicissitudes of each here you have the clear-eyed observer of man as he is catching the manners living as they rise and fixing them in pictures where not their minutest lineament is or ever can be lost here he is the inspired dreamer by whom earth and all its realities are forgotten as his spirit soars and sings in the finer air and amid the diviner beauty of some far-off world of its own now the riotous verse rings loud with the turbulence of human merriment and laughter casting from it as it dashes on its way flash after flash of all the forms of wit and comedy now it is the tranquilizing companionship of the sights and sounds of inanimate nature of which the poet's heart is full the springing herbage and the dewdrops on the leaf and the rivulets glad beneath the morning ray and dancing to their own simple music from mere narrative and playful humor up to the heights of imaginative and impassioned song his genius has exercised itself in all styles of poetry and won imperishable laurels in all it has been commonly believed that one of the chief sources from which chaucer drew both the form and the spirit of his poetry was the recent and contemporary poetry of italy that eldest portion of what is properly called the literature of modern europe the produce of the genius of petrarch and boccaccio and their predecessor master dante but although this may have been the case it is by no means certain that it was so and some circumstances seem to make it rather improbable that chaucer was a reader or a student of italian of those of his poems which have been supposed to be translations from the italian it must be considered very doubtful if any one was really derived by him from that language the story of his Palamon and narsita which as the knight's tale begins the canterbury tales but which either in its present or another form appears to have been originally composed as a separate work is substantially the same with that of boccaccio's heroic poem in twelve books entitled the tesita a fact which we believe was first pointed out by wharton but an examination of the two poems leads rather to the conclusion that they are both founded upon a common original than that the one was taken from the other. Boccaccio's poem extends to about 12,000 octosyllabic, Chaucer's to not many more than 2,000 decasyllabic verses and not only is the story in the one much less detailed than in the other but the two versions differ in some of the main circumstances. Chaucer moreover nowhere mentions Boccaccio as his original on the contrary as Wharton has himself noticed, he professes to draw his materials, not from the works of any contemporary, but from older stories, and older bookes. that all this story telleth more plain. Turwitt, too, while holding, as well as Wharton, that Chaucer's original was Boccaccio, admits that the latter was in all probability not the inventor of the story. Boccaccio himself, in a letter relating to his poem, describes the story as very ancient and as existing in what he calls latino Volgare, by which he may mean rather the provencal than the italian in fact as both wharton and turwitt have shown there is reason to believe that it had previously been one of the themes of romantic poetry in various languages the passages pointed out by turwitt in his notes to chaucer's poem as translated or imitated from that of Boccaccio, are few and insignificant, and the resemblances they present would be sufficiently accounted for on the supposition of both writers having drawn from a common source. Nearly the same observations apply to the supposed obligations of Chaucer in his Troilus and Cressida, to another poetical work of Boccaccio's His Philostrato, The discovery of these was first announced by Turbot in his essay prefixed to the Canterbury Tales, but Chaucer himself tells us two fourteen that he translates his poem out of Latin, and in other passages one three ninety four and five sixteen fifty three he expressly declares his auctor or author to be named Lollius in a note to the parson's tale in the Canterbury Tales. Turwood assumes that Lallius is another name for Boccaccio, but how this should be, he confesses himself unable to explain. In his glossary, a later publication, he merely describes Lallius as a writer from whom Chaucer professes to have translated his poem of Troilus and Cressida, adding, I have not been able to find any further account of him. It is remarkable that he should omit to notice that lollius is mentioned by chaucer in another poem his house of fame three three seventy eight as one of the writers of the trojan story along with homer darius phrygius livy whom he calls titus guido of colonna and english golfred that is geoffrey of monmouth the only writer of the name of lollius of whom anything is now known appears to be lollius urbicus who is stated to have lived in the third century and to have composed a history of his own time which however no longer exists but our ignorance of who chaucer's lollius was does not entitle us to assume that it is boccaccio whom he designates by that name besides the two poems have only that general resemblance which would result from their subject being the same and their having been founded upon a common original turwitt note to parsons tale while he insists that the fact of the one being borrowed from the other is evident not only from the fable and characters, which are the same in both poems, but also from a number of passages in the English, which are literally translated from the Italian, admits that at the same time there are several long passages and even episodes in the Troilus of which there are no traces in the Filistrato, and Wharton makes the same statement almost in the same words. Turwit acknowledges elsewhere too that the form of chaucer's stanza in the troilus does not appear ever to have been used by boccaccio nor does he profess to have been able to find such a stanza in any early italian poetry the only other composition of chaucer's for which he can be imagined to have had an italian original is his clerk's tale in the canterbury tales the matchless story of griselda this is one of the stories of the decameron But it was not from Boccaccio's Italian that Chaucer took it, but from Petrarch's Latin, as he must be understood to intimate in the prologue, where he says, or makes the narrator say, I wol you tell a tale which that I learned at Padawa of a worthy clerk, as preved by his wordus and his work, he is now dead and nailed in his chest. I pray to God so yeva his sola rest. Francis Petrarch, the laureate poet, haita this clerk whose rhetorica sweet enlumined all Italia of Poetria. Petrarch's Latin translation of Boccaccio's tale is, as Turwit states, printed in all the editions of his works under the title of De benedientia et fide usoria, Mythologia, a myth on wifely obedience and faithfulness but indeed chaucer may not have even had petrarch's translation before him for petrarch in his letter to boccaccio in which he states that he had translated it from the decameron only recently come into his hands informs his friend also that the story had been known to him many years before he may therefore have communicated it orally to chaucer Through the medium of what was probably their common medium of communication, the Latin tongue, if they ever met at Padua or elsewhere, as it is asserted they did. All that we are concerned with at present is the fact that it does not appear to have been taken by Chaucer from the Decameron. He makes no reference to Boccaccio as his authority, and while it is the only one of the Canterbury tales which could otherwise have been suspected with any probability to have been derived from that work it is at the same time one an acquaintance with which we know he had at least the means of acquiring through another language than the italian to these considerations may be added a remark made by sir harris nicholas that chaucer was not acquainted with italian says that writer may be inferred from his not having introduced any italian quotation into his works redundant as they are with Latin and French words and phrases, to which he subjoins in a note, though Chaucer's writings have not been examined for the purpose, the remark in the text is not made altogether from recollection, for at the end of Spake's edition of Chaucer's works, translations are given of the Latin and French words in the poems, but not a single Italian word is mentioned. It may be questioned then if much more than the fame of Italian song, Had reached the ear of chaucer but at all events the foreign poetry with which he was most familiar was certainly that of france this indeed was probably still accounted everywhere the classic poetical literature of the modern world the younger poetry of italy which was itself a derivation from that common fountainhead had not yet with all its real superiority either supplanted the old lays and romances of the trouvres. And troubadours or even taken its place by their side the earliest english as well as the earliest italian poetry was for the most part a translation or imitation of that of france of the poetry written in the french language indeed in the eleventh twelfth and thirteenth centuries the larger portion as we have seen was produced in england for english readers and to a considerable extent by natives of this country french poetry was not therefore during this era regarded among us as a foreign literature at all and even at a later date it must have been looked back upon by every educated englishman as rather a part of that of his own land for a century or perhaps more before chaucer arose the greater number of our common versifiers had been busy in translating the french romances and other poetry into english which was now fast becoming the ordinary or only speech even of the educated classes But this work had for the most part been done with little pains or skill and with no higher ambition than to convey the mere sense of the french original to the english reader by the time when chaucer began to write in the latter half of the fourteenth century the french language appears to have almost gone out of use as a common medium of communication the english on the other hand as we may see by the poetry of langland and Minot, as compared with that of Robert of Gloucester, had in the course of the preceding hundred years thrown off much of its primitive rudeness and acquired a considerable degree of regularity and flexibility and general fitness for literary composition. In these circumstances, writing in French in England was over for any good purpose. Chaucer himself observes in the prologue to his prose treatise entitled The Testament of Love, certes there been some that spake their poesy matter in french of which speech the frenchmen have as good a fantasy as we have in hearing of frenchmen's english and again let then clerks indict in latin for they have the property of science and the knowing in that faculty and let frenchmen in their french also indite their quaint terms for it is kindly natural to their mouths and let us show our fantasies in such words as we learned did of our dame's tongue The two languages, in short, like the two nations, were now become completely separated and in some sort hostile, as the kings of England were no longer either dukes of Normandy or earls of Poitou, and recently a fierce war had sprung up still more effectually to divide the one country from the other and to break up all intercourse between them, so the French tongue was fast growing to be almost as strange and distinctly foreign among us as the English had always been in France chaucer's original purpose and aim may be supposed to have been that of the generality of his immediate predecessors to put his countrymen in possession of some of the best productions of the french poets so far as that could be done by translation and with his genius and accomplishments and the greater pains he was willing to take with it we may conjecture that he hoped to execute his task in a manner very superior to that in which such work had hitherto been performed with these views he undertook what was probably his earliest composition of any length his translation of the roman de la rose begun by guillaume de lory who died about 1260 and continued and finished by jean de main whose date is about half a century later this poem says wharton is esteemed by the french the most valuable piece of their old poetry it is far beyond the rude efforts of all their preceding romancers and they have nothing equal to it before the reign of francis the first who died in the year fifteen forty seven but there is a considerable difference in the merit of the two authors william of larry who wrote not one quarter of the poem is remarkable for his elegance and luxuriance of description and is a beautiful painter of allegorical personages john of Murr is a writer of another cast he possesses but little of his predecessors inventive and poetical vein and in that respect he was not properly qualified to finish a poem begun by william of larry but he has strong satire and great liveliness he was one of the wits of the of charles le Bel. the difficulties and dangers of a lover in pursuing and obtaining the object of his desires are the literal argument of this poem this design is couched under the argument of a rose which our lover after frequent obstacles gathers in a delicious garden he traverses vast ditches, scales lofty walls, and forces the gates of Adamantine and almost impregnable castles. These enchanted fortresses are all inhabited by various divinities, some of which assist and some oppose the lover's progress. The entire poem consists of no fewer than 22,734 verses, of which only 4,149 are the composition of William of Glory. All this portion has been translated by Chaucer and also about half of the 18,588 lines written by de Moon. His version comprehends 13,105 lines of the French poem. These, however, he has managed to comprehend in 7,701, Wharton says 7,699, English verses. This is effected by a great compression and curtailment of de Moon's part. For while the four thousand one hundred and forty-nine French verses of De Laury are fully and faithfully rendered in four thousand four hundred and thirty-two English verses, the eight thousand nine hundred and fifty-six that followed by De Mune are reduced in the translation to three thousand two hundred and sixty-nine. Wharton, who exhibits sample specimens both of the translation and of the original, considers that Chaucer has throughout at least equalled De Laury and decidedly surpassed and improved De Mune we can afford space for only one short extract the poet represents himself as having seen all that he relates in a dream that account of which he thus begins that it was may me thought though it is five year or more ago that it was may thus dreamed me in time of love and jollity that all thing ginneth waxen gay for there is neither busk nor hay in May that it nil shrouded bin and it was with newa leaves wren these woodes ache recoverin green that dry in winter been to seen, and the earth waxeth proud withal for so to dews that on it fall, and the power estate forget in which that winter had it set, and then becometh the ground so proud that it wol have a newa shroud and make so quaint his robe and fair that it had hues and hundred pair of grass and flowers in and purrs and many hues full diverse that is the robe i mean iwis through which the ground to praisen is the birdes that hun left their song while they had suffered cold full strong in weather's grill and dark to sight been in may for the sun a bright so glad that they show in singing that in their heart is such liking that they mote singin and bin light then doth the nightingale her might to mock and noise and sing in blithe, then is blissful many a scythe, the chalandre and the Papin gay, then young folk intended aye for to bin gay and amorous, the time is then so savorous. hard is his heart that loveth not in May when all this mirth is wrought, when he may on these branches hear the smaller bird is singin clear a blissful sueta song petus and in this season delatus, when love affirmeth all a thing methought one night in my sleeping right in my bed full readily that it was by the morrow early and up i rose and gan me clothe and anon i wish mine Hondas both a silver needle forth i drew out of a guiler quainty new and gan this needle thread anon for out of town me list to gone the sound of brightest for to hear that on the busk is singing clear in the sweet season that leaf is with a thread basting my sleeves. alone i went in my playing the smallest foulest song hearkening that plained them for many a pair to sing on boughs blossom fair jolly and gay full of gladness toward a river gan me dress which that i heard ran fast to for fairer playin, none saw I than playin me by that river. For from the hill that stowed a there, run near, come down the stream, full stiff and bold. Clear was the water, and as cold as any well is south to sane. And some deal last it was than same, but it was straighter well away and never saw I e'er that day the water that so well a liked me. And wonder glad was I to see that lusty place and that revere with that water that ran so clear my face I wash the saw I wheel the bottom e paved every deal with gravel full of stoneless sheen the meadow's soft a so- and green beat right upon the water-side for clear was then the morrow-tide and full a temper out of dreed though gan i walken through the mead downward ever in my playing nigh to the river-side coasting no verse so flowing and harmonious as this no diction at once so clear correct and expressive had it is probable adorned and brought out the capabilities of his native tongue when chaucer began to write several of his subsequent poems are also in whole or in part translations the troilus and cressida the legend of good women much of which is borrowed from ovid's epistles and others but we must pass over these and will take our next extract from his house of fame No foreign original of which has been discovered although wharton is inclined to think that it may have been translated or paraphrased from the provencal chaucer however seems to appear in it in his own person at least the poet or dreamer is in the course of it more than once addressed by the name of geoffrey and in the following passage he seems to describe his own occupation and habits of life it is addressed to him by the golden but living eagle who has carried him up into the air in his talons and by whom the marvellous sights he relates are shown and explained to him first i that in my feet have thee of whom thou hast great fear and wonder am dwelling with the god of thunder which men ye call in jupiter that doth me fly in full of fur to do all his commandament, and for this cause he hath me sent to thee hearken now by thy troth, certain he hath of thee great vow, for that thou hast so truly so long so ved and tentive flee his blind nephew cupido and the fair queen venus also without in guerdon ever yet and nath the less has set thy wit althoga g- in thy head full lit is to maca books songs and dittis in rhyme or else in cadence as thou best canst in reverence of love and of his servants eke, that have his service sought and seek and painest thee to praise his art, although thou hadest never part, wherefore so wisely God me bless, Jovisi it great humbles, and virtue eke that thou wilt make, a night full oft thine head to ache, in thy study so thou eritest, and evermore of love in thy test, in honor of him and praisings, and in his focus furtherings, and in their matter all devisest and not him nay his folk despisest although thou mayest go in the dance of them that him list not advance. wherefore as i thou said he wist jupiter considereth well this and all those sire, of other things that is that thou hast no tidings of lovest folk if they be glade, nay of nothing else that god made and not only fro fur country that no tidings come unto thee not of thy very neighbors that dwellen almost at thy doors, thou hearest neither that may this for when thy labor all done is and hast made all thy reckonings instead of rest and of new things thou goest home to thine house anon and all so dumb as any stone thou sittest at another book till fully dazed is thy look and livest thus as in hermit although thine abstinence is lit and therefore jovis through his grace will that i bear thee to a place which that ye hight the house of fame etc from the mention of his reckonings in this passage turbert conjectures that chaucer probably wrote the house of fame while he held the office of comptroller of the customs of wolves to which he was appointed in 1374 it may be regarded therefore as one of the productions of the second or middle stage of his political life as the roman of the rose is supposed to have been of the first end of section twenty seven